Alright, let's go ahead and get started. Let me let me start us off with a word of prayer. Father, we are delighted to be among your people. And as a people, this community we're a part of, this broader community of Churches of Christ, there are times recently where we have felt as if we're living in a valley of dry bones. And Father, I pray that each person here might feel the calling to speak words of life. Over these, you're still beloved people, this beloved community that we have belonged to, that we have cherished and that has cherished us. Despite pain and hard stories, and despite the questionable future, we still believe you are in our midst and are at work. Thank you, Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to start off just by giving you some context for where this is coming from for me. Uh, I was at lunch one day with a friend of mine, a young guy uh, in our church when we were in Arkansas, and over some Indian food, uh, he asked me a question. And he asked, why are you still in Churches of Christ? Uh, because... Uh, he had his own questions about our tribe, our community, this tradition that he had been brought up in. And he saw me sticking around, and I, I think what he was asking was, how are you making this work? Because I know we kind of think alike. And so why are you sticking around? So if you tell me why you're sticking around, maybe I can be find a way to stick around too. And so I told him, well, they pay me to stick around. <laughs> that helps a lot. Uh, we didn't have that option. Um, a few months after that conversation, uh, January of last year, in fact, that I had sent a text message to a dear mentor of mine saying, I am done with ministry. Mm. Wow. In fact, I had applied for a job with a dog food company as a taste tester. That tells you how uh, uh, I said the rest of this presentation, I want to tell you about Purina 1, our finest quality ingredients. Um, no, I, I found a way to stick around. Uh, and it, in fact, a week after that text message, the, the elders fired me at the church I was working at. Uh, so it worked out great, right? They, they thought, yeah, let's get rid of him too. Uh, he didn't want to be here. We don't want him here either. Um, <laughs> actually, that's right. Uh, we've landed in a wonderful church uh, down in Bamble at Houston, um, and it's been so life-giving. It's been, it's offered me an opportunity to kind of process the last couple of years, and especially that question that my friend asked me: Why are you still in Churches of Christ? Uh, as someone who has wrestled deeply with that question. Uh, as I imagine many of you have wrestled with that question, why are, why am I still here? All right, I, that's, that's where this class is coming from, and what I hope <coughs> together we can kind of piece together and answer. Uh, and the way I want to do that, I want to start off by looking at Ezekiel 37, and then we're going to talk about something called asset framing uh, from a scholar named Trabian Shorters. 
Uh, his name will pop up a little later. Um, I am by no means an expert in asset framing. It is something I heard once on a podcast on NPR. So that's all I know about it. But as I was listening, it sparked something inside me that this might be a route to go, a helpful way of thinking about my own experience within Churches of Christ. So that's, that's where we're going now. Um, Ezekiel 37. Listen to these words of Scripture. The hand of the Lord was on me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that are very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone... No, here's, here's what strikes me about this. That it's God asking the question. So often I feel like I'm the one asking that question. God, can these bones live? Is there hope here? But here it's God asking Ezekiel, can these bones, look, take a look around, look at all the devastation, look at how bad the situation is, and I want you to tell me, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I think part of what God is doing is confronting Ezekiel's own cynicism about the situation, right? Do you believe these bones can live, Ezekiel? And I found I have had to be confronted with my own cynicism as well, to stick around. I need God to ask me, do you, do you think these bones can live? And of course, Ezekiel's response is, well, you're kind of God, wouldn't you know? Like, <laughs> you're the guy with the answers here. So, and then God says this. He said to me, prophesy to these bones. Yeah. And say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Mm. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin mm -hmm. covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, once again, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, come, breathe from the, the breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. Mm. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. These are your people. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. What is Israel saying about itself? Our bones are dry. I, mean, I feel that. Just thinking about the way we are telling our own story just while we've been here at the lectureship, right? We have all these stories of loss and questions about the future. Um, we hear those statistics all the time about the decline in churches and churches of Christ, right? You've heard some of that this week. We know that story. And so it's easy for us to say, we look around, we look at the bones and to say, oh, the bones are dry. There's nothing going on here. We are cut off. And then God says, therefore, prophesy. Now, I've been trained to think that prophecy usually means a hard word, right? In fact, I went uh, to a, a little charismatic gathering when I was in college. 
Uh, and there was like some healings going on, and there was these, pro- these prophesi- prophets that were there, and they were prophesying over everybody. And of course, being a good Church of Christ kid going in, I was like, I'm going to come in here and disprove all this. <laughs> There's all the biblical reasons why this is not good. Um, so I went in really skeptical. And one of the things I noticed was every time someone went up to the prophet, they always got a good word. It was always something good happening or about to happen for them. And I was looking around. I was like, I know someone in here has cancer. Like something bad is about to happen for somebody in this room. But it was only good words. I have been trained to think about prophecy as a hard word, a bad word, something that pushes against me. And oftentimes that is what's going on in Scripture, when someone is told to prophesy, but not here. In Ezekiel 37, what's going on here is this is a word of life. Is God gives Ezekiel this word to say over the people of God that brings life, breathes life back into them. And I think we're standing in a place where we have to do the same thing. That if our community is going to survive, it's going to thrive, And I don't even know if the goal is to get back to a certain number of attendants. Uh, I think that's a pretty shoddy goal. But I think we can still have the breath of life in us. I think the Spirit of God can still move. But what that's going to require of us is to prophesy. We've got to speak words of life into our communities. Uh, And so here's one way I think we can do that. This is Travian Shorters. If we're going to change our culture... We have to change our narrative. That's what it comes down to. We have to change the mental model that our brains are using to make sense of the world. In other words, the narratives we tell ourselves, the narratives we are living in, shape the way we see the world. The way narratives work is they're like a coffee filter. And what do coffee filters do? You put the grounds in, run the water through them, but the grounds don't get into the cup. So you don't want to drink those grounds. And our, our narratives have a way of filtering. It keeps out certain things and lets other things through. Uh, this is a white Toyota Camry. And the reason this is important is because this is the car I drive. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but driving around town and you start to notice all the people who are driving the same car you're driving. Right? There's white Toyota Camrys everywhere. <laughs> And I didn't notice them before I drove this car, but now I see them all the time. Everyone see, like, have you experienced this? Yeah. Uh, and the reason for that is because this, this car is a part of my story. I know this is part of my identity in some ways. And so I start to see it becomes a filter. It becomes a filter. And so now I see certain things and I don't see other things. Um, the same way with this story in scripture. Many of you have probably heard this. This comes from misreading scripture through western eyes, this example. Um, this is the story of the prodigal son. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Okay, the question is, why is the son in need? And if you ask American audiences, they say, Squandered, right? But you've asked other people in countries where they've actually experienced famine, what do they say? Yeah, there's a severe famine. That's why he's in need. The narrative we're living in filters what we see. It happens all the time. Um, and it filters other... We let some things in and other things we don't see at all. 
we're blind to. Here's what this means. The stories we, te- we tell teach us what we should pay attention to. The stories we are telling about ourselves, the stories we are telling about our churches, the story we are telling about churches of Christ are telling us what to pay attention to. And that's important because we become what we pay attention to. The more time you spend soaking in and allowing your mind to be shaped by the narrative and you start seeing certain things, that infiltrates the way you do life, right? You become what you pay attention to. I become a father, trying to be a good father, by paying attention to my children. And I wouldn't be that if I was ignoring that part of my life, right? We become what we pay attention to. And then another layer. We become the stories we tell about ourselves. That there's a self-fulfilling prophecy element here, right? The stories we tell shape the way we see the world, become a filter, and let certain things in and block other things out, and then we slowly, over time, as we're paying attention to the things we think we're supposed to be paying attention to, we become that. So we become the stories we tell about ourselves. And so here's where I need your help. What story about churches of Christ did you receive, or maybe what churches of what story about churches of Christ are you living in right now? Acapella. Acapella. Well, I heard it was the only one. The only one? Yeah. It's only right one in Zimbabwe. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're the only ones that are right. Is that yeah, what you're Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'd never heard of it before. Yeah. So, when I was, like, 12 years old, uh, everyone, anyone here done LTC? Yeah, uh, leadership training for Christ. This uh, youth conference that's like you do song leading and speech and all these different things uh, to equip young people for uh, service in the church. Uh, we did a fundraiser at Sonic one year to raise money for the youth group to go to LTC. And so what we do is we go and deliver the drinks, and then any tips that we got we got to keep for our youth group. Uh, and there was uh, while I was working there for that fundraiser. This lady zipped around, and she called me over to her car. And I'm expecting, like, she didn't get a straw or something, right? So I walk over, and she says, young man, do you people still think you're the only ones going to heaven? (laughs) And I said, ma'am, I am 12. I don't know. (laughs) Let me get you some of that. I have a napkin for you. Would you like some ketchup? That's that's a story we've told about ourselves, right? Yeah. I love the community. A loving community. Good. <clears throat> Concerned for our neighbors, we reach out to all of our neighbors. And we do something that's called laundry love. Um, we take quarters to a laundromat and we pay for people's washers and dryers. Awesome. I love that. So, and we do that, you know, when we, when we collect enough orders in the jar that sits there in the in the entryway. Yep. So. I love that. Beautiful. It's a brotherhood all the way around the world. A sisterhood. A love for scripture. 
autonomy. Autonomy, yeah. Role of women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying to figure out which way we're going. <laughs> you already mentioned it, but that should probably be on the board about just the decline. and you know, That's the story people are talking about a lot these days. And mm -hmm. the, 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 the lack of younger people. Yeah, yeah, lack of younger people. Lack of you. I don't know if you heard somebody over here said, I don't tell that story. And that's true. We avoid a lot of stories. We avoid stories. Yeah. Like what stories? The role of women. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 The, ones on the, right side. the fact that my blood pressure went up when she said this was like, <laughs> this is being recorded. Uh, yeah. Uh, so there's some some stories don't get told. Yeah. I would say legalism. Sorry. Legalism. Two words put it up there. Yeah. Where I, where I live is there is a Church of Christ that is known as the home of the anti-movement. Home of the anti-movement. Yeah. yeah. That's that's our bragging rights. <laughs> <laughs> you said it was the Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> They're like a mile and a half from our building. No kitchen. Right. And talk a little bit about what that means. What is no it? kitchen. No kitchen. Uh, no kitchen. In the building, anti everything. Anti. If it's if, if someone's for it, we're against it. Okay. Yeah. Richard Beck one time told uh, the class at Highland that uh, that his church that he grew up at was the liberal one because they served hot dogs on campus. Yeah. yeah. They were the heretics because the hot dogs. We our church actually. 50 years ago split off of them and our mission statement was we were church for not against. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. For, for food and the hot dogs. That's something we can rally around. You know, a misunderstanding or sometimes an ignorance of other groups. Yeah, good. Yes. Yeah, good. Yeah. I'm not from the Church of Christ, but they all seem to know what, what they are. Like, oh, I'm a soprano, I'm an alpha. Ah! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my yeah, high school choir together. was that. And you all sit together. Wait, what? Yeah. Uh, my high school choir teacher was so excited when she found out I was Church of Christ. She was very quickly disappointed, but <laughs> this is why. <laughs> Please God and not people. Good. Communion and baptism. Communion and baptism, yeah. Poor identity markers. That should be next to the only one. That's just an opinion. <laughs> what else? Go on with the anti kind of fits in there segregated. Segregated. We have multiple churches with different people in different yeah, and segregated in so many ways, right? North side and south side Church of Christ, right? There's always at least, or west side, east side, right? 
I told him not to say anti, but he did it anyways. Because he's anti, you telling him what to do? Uh, it's, it's but segregated racially as well, right? I mean, that's that's a deeply ingrained part of our history that uh, in order to protect white privilege, we, we made some decisions along the way. Roll of the Holy Spirit. Roll the and what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and being uncomfortable with that a lot of things, right? <clears throat> Good. Yeah, Alan. Fear of change. Fear of change. With, with tradition, can we put tradition too? Tradition? Yeah, yeah well, we can. Oh, I know slash that word tradition. banned at our church, so. <laughs> you bad? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I just recently saw someone describe tradition as peer pressure from dead people, and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great uh, definition. Okay, I, I, I love this uh, because I, there's there's a complex story here, isn't there? Right. This isn't all bad, and it's not all good, and some of it's kind of it is what it is, right? Uh, but this is this is the story we've got to wrestle with, and I think that's especially true uh, for young people that have a certain story that's been received. I think um, we kind of covered this stuff. What do we what have we thought about? Actually, let's let's do this one a little bit. What have we? What story do Churches of Christ tell about church history? AD thirty three. Yeah, it's on our buildings. Um, and, if, and if we're maybe a little bit more honest, it looks like this. This is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. Jesus is so lucky to have us. Right? The early church had it right. We want to go back to the pristine first century church, and then there's the dark ages until the churches of Christ appeared. Right? And we saved the day. We're the remnant. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, here's, here's the thing. I, I think we have some grounds in our copy. There's some things that have slipped through because of the stories we've been telling about ourselves. Um, and I think especially about my own experience in Churches of Christ, where I actually had a really great experience growing up. Um, beautiful church. Um, that, you know, wanted, wasn't quite completely afraid of change. Um, you know, we had a seated praise team. You know, that's how Praising out there we were, right? Um, no, but it was, it was making movements in some ways. And what I experienced was that, that third thing on the board of a loving community. That these are my people. I felt deeply loved in this place. However... I also received some stories about churches of Christ and what we didn't want to be. What I've noticed is, I think my generation and younger have received the Bible from people who were traumatized by it. We are living in churches and going to church with folks who survived legalism and did not want to see us go back there. right? And they fought against it. And I am so thankful for that. But I think part of what I received in the process was churches of Christ are bad, right? We have some major baggage. We don't get, because what the story was, was we don't want to be like we were. And that was so attached to that church of Christ identity that churches of Christ itself, for me, had this negative connotation, if that makes sense. 
And so that question that I was asked over lunch sounds like this. If my religious <coughs> identity is primarily connected to a negative narrative, why should I retain that identity? If the only stories I know are churches of Christ are dangerous and they've been bad and they've been legalistic and all the things, number one, that makes me hesitant to want to give my life to that. But number two, it filters out some of the beautiful stuff, right? There's good stuff in our story too, right? The concern for neighbors, the brotherhood and sisterhood, the community, the loving community, love for scripture, uh, wrestling through some hard questions together. I mean, there's, there's some beautiful stuff up here, but, but it's tempting, right? We can be conditioned to miss that because of the narratives we've been telling about our own story, right? Um, and so what do, we, what do we do about that? Uh, here's what Trudian Shorter says about asset framing. And asset framing has a lot to do with thinking about how to make society more equitable, and so when you describe someone as a at-risk student, you're telling a story about that student. And so are there ways we can shift the way we talk about groups of people that actually put the emphasis on what they're bringing to the table rather than what they lack, right? That's what asset framing is talking about. And so here's what he says. How do we create equitable outcomes for all members of our community? We start by defining people by their aspirations, not their challenges. And he, he expands on that. So what we want to do is acknowledge the true person, the true spirit living in someone, the thing that motivates them, what gets them going. It's not that they're poor. They don't wake up in the morning inspired by that. Their spirit isn't moved by that. Their spirit isn't moved by being marginalized or all that kind of thing. There is something that they aspire to, to create, to give to someone else. And if you start your relationship with a person by acknowledging what spirit you actually, is actually living in front of you, then you're going to have a different relationship. Okay, I think that's true with people. I also think it's true of groups of people as well. I think it can be applied to our own movement. Um, here's an example of the kind of work Trading Shorters does, just to kind of help us uh, get a grasp of this. This it was the headline, or like the first lead line, of a newspaper article. And this newspaper hired him on to help them you know, edit their work so they could be more uh, you know, asset framing. They wanted to dig in on that rather than deficit framing. So the, the way they wrote it was, the Latinx community in the United States has always been, for the most part, on the bottom half of income in the American society. The struggle to have access to health and mental care is part of the history, however, the COVID-19 pandemic has come to intensify the problems. Okay, so here's the edited version that Trayvon Shorters helped them with. In recent years, Latinx residents have made advances in economic well-being, measured by metrics like reduced poverty rates and growth in business ownership. Despite this impressive social and economic progress, Latinx residents have lagged behind other Californians in achieving important goals like home ownership and income growth. And we can now add to that list the disproportionate harm visited on the community by the COVID-19 pandemic. You hear the difference? Oh, wow. Yeah. Two very different ways of telling the story. What is Latinx? What's that? What is the definition of Latinx? Uh, I think it's trying to unfold all... All Latins? All yeah, Hispanics? Yeah, yeah. 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 Hispanic, Latino. You know, um, the, the thing about that is, is, is uh, they were the, uh, they were the richest... Uh, 
they were the richest colonizers to come over here. And so I don't know what even either one of those statement, statements, they had the most gold, they had the most, they, they, they were very prosperous 500 years well, ago. Well, right, and it t- depends on where you start the story, too. And right? more, That's educated, the way that frame, more educated yeah. than anybody else, too, by the way. Yeah. Uh, where we start the story matters. Uh, but okay, but the, but the point here is, you can see the difference of what happens, and, and that's right. I have these people work for me all the time. They were vital to my well-being, and I say, "What you're doing for me, you're doing for yourself." And it's my whole attitude approach to them. And that shape, if we're listening to stories, how the stories we're listening to shape the way we see other groups of people, right? That's the part of this story. But beyond this, it shapes how we see everything. So how we tell the story deeply matters. And so here's the question I want to ask us. What aspirations did Churches of Christ have at the beginning of our history? Uh, and this, give, give me some stuff. Unity. Unity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to stay over here. Freedom to worship freedom how we to, wanted. Freedom to, yeah. Which kind of goes back to the autonomy, right? Freedom to worship. What else? Speak where the Bible speaks. Speak and where the Bible Silent where the Bible doesn't say anything about it. Right. <laughs> A logical <laughs> system of church government. Logical system. And I, I missed something. Oh, Do we have something here? I'm just listening. Okay. Simplicity. <laughs> Simplicity. Yeah. Um, it's hard not to notice the difference between walking into a Church of Christ auditorium, worship space, whatever you're supposed to call it, uh, and like a Catholic mm-hmm. cathedral, mm-hmm. right? Two very different experiences. Yeah. And the very first Reformation, there was tolerance to other views. Tolerance to other views. Yeah. And it, yeah. 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 There's more we can say about that. <laughs> Good. Priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers. No, here's another chair. Say a little bit more about that. You know, witnessing to the widows and the orphans and uh, the foreigners instead of just serving ourselves. Yeah, yeah, mission focused. Action. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. No dogma or doctrine. Yeah. supposed to be a hierarchy. No hierarchy. No hierarchy. That's kind of what Jimmy was talking about with the priesthood of all believers, but it's still... There's a level in here. Yeah, there's a level. Yeah, good. Maybe let's shift this just a little bit. Um, What was the compelling story we told about ourselves? So we've named some things that 
were kind of characteristics of the early movement. What did people find compelling about this? Based on the Bible, New Testament church. Based on the Bible. So I think there was this sense of trustworthy authority, right? That I could, I could base my life on this because it was coming from a, a trusted source. Yeah. I think it's inclusive rather than exclusive. It, it's inviting people into something. You don't need to go to uh, a leader somewhere to affirm that you should be able to, uh, to lead a church. That's right. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, it powers the membership itself. Yeah, yeah, good. What else? What was compelling about this? thing about it is the um, the language of the, it closed the distance between us and God yeah. than the hierarchy churches did where you know there's all these rituals and all these things you have to do and this would be like you just come everybody has their own Bible you read it yourself um, that to me would have been the compelling thing about the original yeah yeah, this it's a more intimate kind of yes. relationship with God, direct access. Yes. Yeah. This sort of goes with talking about the Bible, but my, my father said it was a group that used their Bibles. Right. He heard the Bible, you know, preached. Yeah. So it was that that compelled them. Right. Yeah. They are Bibles for sure. O oftentimes, I ask this question of non-church Christ people: what what do y'all define us by? And that's that's what they come back to a lot: is like, man, y'all. Y'all know your Bible, yeah. And just you know, and, and just there's just something something about that, you know. Yeah, we could we could misuse that. I understand that, but I mean, there's a there's just some there's something about that when others that's yeah. what they know us by. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. What was the question? Uh, what was compelling about the story we told about ourselves? Yeah. What's compelling about this? The best I can like Jesus. Yeah. His prayer, pay attention to that Yeah. As much as possible. Yeah. And not let my crazy thoughts get in the way of unity, fellowship. Fellowship, I think, we forgot. Yeah. We were the original Bible church, and Campbell's original appeal on the frontier was we got. 16, 17 different denominations out here. We're never going to get unified. It's yeah. just us, right? Yeah. Unless we go back to the Bible and strip away all the dogma that's mm -hmm. been encrusted by the right. for the last uh, 2,000 years. 
suspicious of how it's enacted. Maybe that's another way to say it. Um, and here's, here's, here's what I think is going on. It, and a lot of this is generational. It's not all generational tension, but I think some of it is. And there's a uh, missionary um, named Leslie Newbergen. He's written a lot of books on how to do mission work in evangelism. And what he noticed was there was a point in time when you could tell that the missionary was fully successful in sharing the gospel, that that the gospel had been received and became a part of the new culture's identity. And you know what that moment was? When they started arguing back with the missionary. <laughs> but uh, the Bible didn't say that. <clears throat> I think that's what we're living through. That we're living in this new missionary movement. And I have received the Bible from a group of people who were doing their best to love God and blessed me in so many ways. And I've received that gospel. Mm. And there's some things I disagree with. Because I deeply believe in the gospel. Okay. That's a totally different way of seeing that generational divide. And this challenge to think about how our story can be compelling again than the way we typically think about it. Right? That it's just this kind of power struggle over who gets their way. Um, Yeah. Can I say something? Or you gonna, yeah, no, please, please. The, uh, so uh, uh, I was raised uh, in a conservative church. You were, a, you know, and when you got to be a, a teenager, you wore a, a tie and a jacket and and polishable shoes. And uh, and so we would ask, why, why do we have to do this? Yeah. Uh, you know, there was so there was discussions. We'd all be in the car and go to church. It came from a family of six, and we'd all be in the car and go home. And there was discussions in the car back and forth. You know, why do we have to do this? Because God wants you to bring His best. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I said, well, yes, He does. Is it? So that's your best. And yeah. if that's the best you have, you wear it. Yeah. To church to honor God. And, I, and I, okay, and you're getting at something I think is really important. The, there's always going to be that question, right? If you're if you're passing on something, why do you do it this way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We better have some good answers, mm-hmm. right? because people are calling it bluff, That's right. Right, right? And young people are calling it bluff That's because right. you just think about the first thing we named over here, acapella. Mm-hmm. Why do we do it that way? The Bible says so. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Show me. Mm-hmm. We can't rely on that argument anymore if we want to retain this, or we need to cons- reconsider what this does. Why? Why is this a part of our identity? Are there better reasons for this? Are there deeper reasons? Yes. Do we need to repent of some things we've yes. said about this? Yes. Or are there new ways we need to practice church together? I mean, all of that's on the table, I think. Yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. But we got to have some compelling reasons for why we do what we do. Because if we don't, people are going to check out. Yeah. They're calling BS. Yes. Right. We're, we're out of here. You guys don't, re- you're just doing it because you're bowing to peer pressure from dead people. That's what you're doing. <laughs> right. Unless you have a compelling, life-giving reason for doing what you're doing. Um, and so what I want to talk about is just a couple of things um, about what I believe we are at our best. Two things, and I'm going to invite you to add if you have time. Or just think about it as you leave. Here's what I love about us. Number one, we have a stubborn commitment to preserving the unruliness of the Bible. Mm. 
The unruliness of the Bible. Because what we want, and what it sounded like at the beginning was, we don't listen to the traditions of men. We only want to listen to the word of God. Right? And that got perverted along the way in some ways. Big time. But what I love about the tradition I received was there was this commitment to letting the letting the Bible have a word, right? Letting the Bible speak. It's something I need to listen to, and it will challenge my preconceived notions. I have those coffee filters already set up, and there's certain coffees I prefer, but it doesn't mean they're the best coffees. I might need to try some other stuff. I might need to let some other stuff through the filter. And the scripture, if we'll let it, will continue to do that for us. It's something, I think scripture is something we continue to wrestle with. It's not something we can finally explain away and flatten and say, okay, here's all the answers. And we got them from scripture. No, scripture is like, we're like Jacob wrestling with God. That's what we're doing with the Bible. Um, I love the way David Bentley Hart talks about this. David Bentley Hart may be the smartest Christian alive right now. And I, and I say that because he thinks he's that. I don't know how many others do that. He definitely thinks he is. Um, and he is pretty smart. But this is what he says. Really, on the whole, Christians rarely pay particularly close attention to what the Bible actually says. He's an Orthodox uh, thinker, by the way, Eastern Orthodox, coming from a different background. Mm -hmm. So this is what he sees. What's his name again? David Bentley Hart. Um, And his name will pop up here at the end. For the simple reason that the text defies synthesis in a canon of exact doctrines, and yet most Christians rely on doctrinal canons. That is... We want to believe a certain set of beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't want anyone to mess with those beliefs. And anything we have from Scripture that fits that set of beliefs, we're going to invite in. That's going to make it through the filter. Anything that doesn't match that set of beliefs, we're going to keep out of the filter, right? The filter filters it out. He says, theologians are often the most cavalier in their treatment of text, chiefly because their first loyalty to, is usually to the grand system of belief. Arminianism, Calvinism. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, whoever, pick your favorite theologian, they've got a system, and I'm going to try to preserve that system and argue why it's the best and argue away everything else, despite what the Bible might say to confuse some of that, right? Uh, because the first loyalty is usually to the grand system of belief, uh, but the Bible is not a system. A very great deal of theological tr- tradition consists, therefore, in explaining away those aspects of Scripture that contradict the finely wrought structure of this or that orthodoxy. Okay. Now, Church of Christ have been just as guilty of having an orthodoxy that can go unchallenged by the Bible, right? That's right. <coughs> but I think also within us, there is this built-in check on that system, right? That says, okay, you know, we're, if, it's, if it's not in Scripture, if I can't find it there, then I have some real questions I need to wrestle with. Uh, if I'm going to continue leave, leaving these things about God, the Church, whatever, right? Um, and number two... In the current climate of divisiveness, a church full of recovering sectarians has the resources to be countercultural and safe. In the current climate of divisiveness, a church full of recovering sectarians has the resources to be countercultural and safe. Here's what I mean by that. We have been through what it looks like to be completely convinced we're right and that everyone else is wrong, and we saw the damage that does. Some of you lived through it. Some of you are traumatized by it. And we don't want to go back there. That's right. 
but there is a whole swing I feel like in our culture right now where everyone is just dividing out. Yes. And we are standing, I think, in a very unique place. The Churches of Christ actually have a gift to offer <coughs> the wider world because we know how ugly that is. Yes. And we have some of the resources we need to push back against that because here's what we know. That unity is born not out of conformity. Right? You've heard that sermon how many times? Mm. <laughs> what it comes from is maturity. Mm-hmm. Unity is born out of maturity. And that's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 4. If we want to have unity, what we've got to do is be built up into the very likeness of Christ. And if we are all Christ-like, we're going to find unity pretty easily. Amen. If we don't have that, if we're not growing and maturing, if we are letting the lowest common denominator decide what gets done in church or in whatever arena, we're always going to be divided. Unity comes from maturity. And I think we have some of the resources we need to make a real contribution in that. But that's a gift for people walking into our churches who are worn out by what they're seeing on Facebook and the news and politics and all that stuff. If we can be a place that knows how to dismantle that kind of thinking, because we've had to do it ourselves, man, we can be a different kind of place for people. I love that about us. Okay, we're out of time. Be thinking about what else you would add. Um, Thank you for coming. Blessing for the rest of your day.